My, uh, my Greek language professor, Dr. Lee Metz, once told us in a class, uh, he said, listen, guys, when you preach, he goes, if you don't occasionally ruffle feathers, all you're going to do is tickle ears. And so my prayer today is that some feathers get ruffled because um, um, I think it's necessary sometimes. Uh, I believe that God has called this church to do great things with him, not for him. We have to be careful in how we situate the things we say in language. When we say, I want to do this for Jesus as if Jesus needs us to do something for him. Jesus allows us and empowers us to do things with him, to be on mission with him in this community. And so it's my hope that as First Methodist Carrollton, that we will begin to change the scope and the vision of this place to be outreach oriented. And this is what I'm going to talk about today from the verse in James, is that we need to have our faith put into work so that it's a faith that is alive. The year was 1860. Niagara Falls, New York. Anyone ever been to Niagara Falls? Is that like, is, isn't that a wonderful, um, unbelievable? September 14th. This crazy French guy named Charles Blodin shows up. He's a high-wire acrobat from France. And he and his team stretch a wire across the gorge about 1,100 feet across, about 160 feet down into the Niagara River. And this is all unexpected. This is just a spontaneous thing that Blodin does. And he shows up with his team, stretches it across, and he begins to walk across this high-wire. All the tourists see this spectacle and they begin to gather. They begin to see what's happening and they're like, you guys got to come see this. Come check out this crazy guy. Blodin goes, man, he makes it across the gorge. People are clapping, ooh, ah. Next time he goes, crosses his legs and he has a seat right in the middle of his wire. Eats a ham sandwich. Gets back up, goes across. And for his last feat, what he did was something really spectacular. He took a wheelbarrow. And filled it up with dirt, weighed over about 250 pounds. And he takes the wheelbarrow and walks it across one-fifth of a mile, 160 feet above the raging water. And when he makes it to the other end, the crowd is so enormous at this time, they are just cheering with excitement and enthusiasm of what they've just witnessed. So much so, this little old lady... Some people believe her name was Mary Burton. She runs out. She's about late 60s. And she just cannot control herself. And she hugs Blodin. And she says, Mr. Blodin, I am amazed. She goes, I believe that you could go back and forth across this gorge, this chasm a million times and never fall off. Even with this enormous wheelbarrow. And he goes, do you really believe I have that power and that ability? She goes, Absolutely. He dumps it out. He says, get in. <laughs> Miss Mary Burton turned her back and walked away. <laughs> but think about it. This is the Christian walk for many people. It is easy to profess or even confess that Jesus is my Lord. 
It's easy to have what we call in philosophy, what we call an epistemic belief. It's a belief of knowledge that I have accepted to believe certain doctrines or dogmas or creeds or prayers about Jesus. It is a very, very different thing indeed to get in the wheelbarrow. And this is the challenge that I want to give us today. Is that it's time to stop merely believing and to start living. That if we're going to make all these claims about Jesus to a world with just our words, man, we better have the will to put those words into action as well. I mean, think about it. Social media is just inundated with so-called Christians. And how do we know them? Well, we have what? Their Facebook status says they're a Christian. Their Ichthus fish on their car. Their t-shirt. But here's my question. If we have a hold and believe the greatest story ever told, that God made a way for us to be made right with him. Why, why are our churches in decline? That's the question. That's the question. Let's look at this passage again from James. I don't know if the ladies have it, but if we could pull it up. It says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and you simply say, God bless you, brother, go in peace, be warmed, but you do not provide what is necessary, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is what? Dead. James, about ten verses after this, he compares, he gives us an analogy. He goes, faith without works is like a body without its spirit. And he asks this rhetorical question, can that faith save a person? Now, I'm of the persuasion, yes, it can. A faith that has no works may be dead, but it's still what? Faith. In the same way that a body without a spirit is still a what? It's still a body. But it's very useless. Going back to my granddad. I remember the day we walked into that funeral home and my grandmother had asked me to be with her when they opened this door because we are about to encounter him as a dead person in a casket. And I remember that moment, uh, the funeral director opens the doors and there he is, there's my grandfather lying in a casket. It was very emotional. I walked with my grandma uh, to the casket site. And she was obviously very emotional and a visceral response. But I want you to think about something else that day. Other than the loss of someone dear to me. Imagine me trying to introduce you to him on that day. Hey, Chris, man, this is my granddad. He was awesome, man. He lit up a room. He was a Cajun man who French was his first language. He loved the LSU Tigers. He loved the New Orleans Saints, and he imparted that to me. Man, his joy, his, his just enthusiasm. With life. I mean, how ridiculous is it for us to try to introduce someone to someone we know and love and trust and care for when they're actually what? Dead. There was nothing. There was nothing about my granddad 
in his very presence that reminded me of his presence, there was more absent about him in his presence. Does that make sense? Why? Because he was dead. He was gone. And most people who call themselves Christian, not everyone, but a lot, make an easy proclamation. I believe in Jesus. Just as Ms. Burton believed Mr. Blodan could make it. But when Jesus calls us to get in that wheelbarrow, what happens? We usually take a step back. Why? Because it requires us to do something difficult. What's interesting in that verse when it says faith without works is dead, that word works in Greek is ergon. And here's what it means. It doesn't just mean I go serve in children's ministry. Hey, I might work with the youth. That word ergon means you got to toil. It is hard to serve Jesus because Jesus requires everything from you. Why? For his glorification. It's for his glory. Not the glory of my bank account. Not the glory of the subdivision that I live in. Not the glory of the type of car I may drive. It's for his glory alone. And he may require me to give something or give something up for his glorification. And that may be difficult for us, right? John Wesley knew this. And he talked about these three modes of grace. The first one is the prevenient grace. It's that grace that Wesley said will go before us. It's always already present. And then we have what he calls justifying grace. It's that grace that makes me right before God. This is the belief stage. This is when I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is God. It is an accomplishment that is done for you, not by you. That justifying grace makes me right, right with God. But this last piece that Wesley wrote about, he calls it sanctifying grace. And this is the grace that gets inside of you and empowers you and removes not necessarily fear and doubt. Because even when we do great things with God, there will always be an element of fear and doubt. And that's where God meets us at that point to show us. Because what good is faith if you're certain about something? God wants us to believe and to trust. And Wesley knew the sanctifying grace is the grace that empowers me to trust. But you have to do something with it. Let me just say this. Showing up to church on Sunday morning is not a very hard act of faith. But hugging someone who's different than you, loving someone who you completely disagree with, and still embracing them with the love of Christ, that's kind of hard for people. We're trying to reach a world with the greatest story that's ever told. And we need God to infuse in our hearts that, that notion of sanctifying grace. To love people, listen to me, if you get anything today, to love people when they least expect it and even more so when they least deserve it. That's hard faith. I'm going to share this story and then I'm going to close. And I'm going to ask you to respond today. As to who's, who's ready to go with me and our staff to do hard things for God's glorification. Because he justifies 
so that I might be sanctified in order to glorify him. I'm glad my buddy Driscoll Tubbs is here because Driscoll, I think, was there this night this took place. Um, I took a, about 100 students to New Orleans, Louisiana. And all of my students were white, upper middle class Driscoites, right? And we went to New Orleans, which was predominantly black, lower class, poverty-stricken area. And we went to this place called the Apex Center. And we were working with five-year-olds to 14-year-olds. And I had my high school students with me. So that day we had about 30 of them. And we had 20 high schoolers doing another project. We walked into this place on a Monday. And these kids were bad. In fact, most parents probably didn't even know that their kids were showing up at this place. They just kind of roamed the streets and did whatever. And my 30 high schoolers get in there and we have this expectation it's going to be a VBS like in Frisco, right? A lot of well-behaved kids. I'll never forget one of my students, her name was Macy, went to give this, this little girl a hug. And this little girl cursed her out. Said, get your away from me, you fat, and called her. And Macy was like, oh, my goodness. Eyes wide. I said, that's why we're here. Do hard things. <laughs> Faith without works is dead. Because it's easy to love those people we agree with. It's easy to love those people who look just like us. Man, it was a hard day. It was a rough day that first day. In fact, we get back to our lodging and the seniors call an emergency meeting with me. They say, hey, Troy. Please, please tell us we're not going back. I said, oh, not only are we going back, we're taking the other 20 with us as well. What? You're crazy. I said, you know what, tell me one guy that's worth mentioning in the Bible that we wouldn't stick in an insane asylum right now. Think about it. So we took him in. And I'll never forget there's this kid. His name was Luther. Luther was about six foot five. He might have weighed 100 pounds soaking wet. And I remember the first day I saw Luther was on a Monday. And we all had name tags and I was in charge of recreation in the hot New Orleans sun. And Luther comes out and I put my hand out. I was like, hey, Luther, what's up, man? I'm Troy. And he, he swings at me. But he stops. And I was like, no, go ahead, bro. Go ahead. Right there. I said, I was in boxing for about four years. I said, there are nerves on both ends of my jaw that go into my brain. This is when a boxer gets hit in the right spot, he's knocked out. And Luther was like, for real? I was like, yeah, but here's the problem. If you don't knock me out, I get to hit you as hard as I can. And he was like, all right. I went, hold on. And there was a little, like, monkey bar. I started doing some pull-ups. Then I took off my shirt and I have all these tattoos everywhere. And Luther was like, I'm good, bruh. I'm good, bruh. How is this guy a pastor with tattoos, right? Whatever. All week long, man, Luther was like hell on wheels, hell on wheels. Would not listen, would not obey. And he and one of my students named Alex really got at each other's throats. They were about as different as you could be. Luther black, poverty, Alex rich, white kid. Thursday was our last day at the Apex Center. And um, Luther's walking out. We're going to come back on Friday for a half day, little prayer walk, and then we're done. 
And as Luther's walking out, here comes this little lady who's running the place. Her name is Lisa Fitzpatrick. A nice little Methodist lady in New Orleans. And she comes out. She's seriously about this tall. And she goes, Luther, come here. And without blinking, Luther turns around and walks right over. He's like, yes, ma'am. I'm like, where have you been all week, lady? Where have you, where have you been? And she goes, Luther, are you ready for school tomorrow? And I was like, school tomorrow? I thought they started school Monday. She goes, no, Luther goes to a charter school. He starts tomorrow. Luther, are you ready for school? And he goes, no, ma'am. She goes, why not, Luther? And he says, I don't have any clothes to change because they have to wear a uniform. She goes, well, did you check my husband's closet, Luther? He says, yes, ma'am, but Mrs. Charles is a little bit too short. She goes, well, what are you going to do, Luther? What are you going to do? And he says, I'm just not going to go and change my clothes. And it was like the Holy Spirit like jabbed me so hard in my heart. And he showed me there that poverty doesn't start with a kid who's rebellious and mean. It starts with a kid who doesn't have clothes to go to school. Because if he shows up in his jeans and his t-shirt, what are they going to do anyway? They're going to kick him out and they're going to reject him. Just like most people reject him anyway because he's a black kid in New Orleans roaming the streets. And my heart broke in that moment. I said, Luther, I want you to get in my car in my van, my kids are already loaded up. Jump in. I'm going to take you get some clothes. Miss Lisa says, well, Troy, you, you know, we may want to do that. We may want to call his dad. He's a prideful guy. He's about 6'8", 300 pounds. I said, call him. I was all confident. And she calls him and she hands me the phone. She goes, he wants to talk to you. And I hear this gigantic size man on the other side of the phone going, I would be very appreciative if you could do that for my son. I'm not getting paid for another two weeks, and I need my boy in school. And you could hear the tears rolling down his face. So Luther follows me. I jump in the driver's seat of my van. He jumps in shotgun. And behind me is Alex. Troy, what the hell are you doing? I'm taking Luther somewhere. You know who this is? I said, I know who it is. It's Luther, a.k.a. they gave him the nickname Lucifer. I said, he can hear you, bro. He's like right there. And he was like, no, man, this is, no, bro, this, he's, he's angry. And I looked at Alex and I said, you are about to see how the power of God really works. We want to see God do miraculous things like hands growing, bag, blind, healed. That's cool. But let me tell you how God really works. We drove to Walmart. We walk into Walmart, and Luther is following me. I said, Luther, here are the pants. What color do you need? He goes, I need some khaki pants. All right, what size are you? He's like 26, 37, something. I was like, dang. Let's find something, brother. And I said, here, will these do? And he grabs one. He goes, yes, sir. Sir? I have 50 high school kids going, What's happening? What's going on? Come on, Luther. Here, here's some more pants. I put like four or five pairs. I said, do you need shirt? What color shirts do you need, Luther? He goes, I need white and baby blue. Let's find them. And I said, man, you know what? I've never seen Luther, a black dude in New Orleans, wear a baby blue shirt before. He was and he starts laughing. My kids are really like, what is going on? This kid has not laughed all week. 
You got socks, Luther? No, sir. Luther, you can have any shoes, man. You got holes the size of golf balls in your shoes, bro. You can have any shoe that would be in there. These nice LeBrons. Sorry, Luther, we are. No, we walk, man, across the Foot Locker. We get him some shoes. He's blown away. He's blown away. My kids are blown away. I said, Luther, you owe me for these shoes, bro. You owe me for these clothes. He's like, I don't, I don't have any money. I said, no, no. I said, tonight we are ministering at the New Orleans Mission. And I said, 250 homeless people are going to be there. And we're going to serve them food. We're going to worship with them. I'm going to preach. We're going to pray for them. You need to help me. He's like, I have to ask my dad. I said, I already did. He said, as long as I bring you home, it's good. All right. So, man, we get there at the mission, and Luther was sitting on the front row right there. And I took these big cans out of the back of the storage with the food, and I just ripped the labels off of them. They're just like silver cans. And I pick it up, and I go, hey, y'all, what's in this can? And when you're in a homeless shelter, you're never without a response from somebody. And one of the guys goes, we don't know. It ain't got no label. And I was like, that's right, but somebody tell me, well, what, what's in this can? Somebody went, you know you're in Louisiana. He went, some yams. I went, yeah, we got, wait, I got, so I found a yam sticker and I put it on it. And I start stacking these things up. What's in this one? Tomatoes, carrots. And I have all my cans stacked up and I pick one up. I go, but is that really what's in here? And they say, well, we don't know, but who knows? The person who canned it. And I said, let me give you some labels society has placed on you that you didn't put on yourself. Poor, black, rich, homeless. But let me give you the label that God has given you. I have given you the right to become my son, my daughter, when you believe in me. That's the only label that really matters. Right on. And dude. I said, if you are tired of society placing labels on you that you didn't place on yourself, but you're ready to be called the one who made you, the one who canned you himself, I said, I want to pray for you. So I'm thinking like 10 or 15 people, 200 people stand up and come down to the altar. And I went, oh, man, what? And I can't pray for all these people. So I start calling my students to come help me. And the music is playing. And when I get down, I see the name Luther. The homeless Isaac, like almost shaking under the power of God. And I walk over and I say, Luther, what's wrong? I don't know. I don't know. He's like, what do you need, Luther? Why are you up here? more Jesus in my life. I said, well, what do you want me to do, Luther? Pray. Pray for me. So I prayed for him. Boom, man. 15-year-old kid who just cannot hold it in. And I look at him and I go, Luther, I'm converting you. And he gives me this quizzical look. I said, he is. I'm standing right behind him. I'm pointing this out. Look at this. Hard things. God has called us to hard things. To love people 
when they least expect it and even more so when they least deserve it. And that day, my friend Alex saw how the power of God really works. It works when you love, when you feel you can't give because you disagree so vehemently and so passionately. You still embrace. Those boys had nothing in common except the one thing that mattered in common, and that was Christ in common. Jesus is Lord of all. He's the Lord of the universe. He is the creator. And it doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you have, the color of your skin, your ethnicity, what you have in common with a world out there who needs the love of God is Christ in common. Faith without works is dead. But the work God calls us to is not simply easy belief. It is a belief to get off of our laurels and to love people when they least expect it and when they least deserve it. We start doing that church, we'll, we, we'll have to, five services, six services, who knows. That is why I believe God has called me to this place, is to help inspire and encourage. Because a sermon can only do so much, let me just be honest. A sermon can encourage you, it can challenge you. A sermon can never change you. You have to be open to the possibility of change, to love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. So bow your heads with me. Father, you are the God of grace. That sanctifying grace that opens up the horizon of possibilities for us to experience healing, for us to experience helping others. And God, I know there are people here that their hearts are stirred, their minds are open to saying, use me, God. I'm done with just the faith that calls me to believe. I want a faith that empowers me, challenges me to work, to reach those people in my neighborhood, my community. We need your help, God. So in just a few moments we have, if you are here and you say, my faith alone may be good enough for me, but it's not good enough to reach those people who are far from God. As David and the band sing, these altars are open for you to come and make a declaration, not to me, but to God. Because guess what? One of the first and the most difficult things to do is to stand up and to say, I will do it. I will. It's a hard faith. Our pastor Chiv and I will be here to just pray and agree with you. That's it. So if you feel called to be open to the possibility of God's power, not only going inside of your mind for belief, but to being used in your community. The altars are open. Make your way and we'll pray with you guys as the band.